In Matthew 5 and 16, Jesus spoke those familiar words, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16 said that we're to take heed unto ourselves and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. In other words, Christianity, true Christianity, is more than a sermon that is to be preached. It's a sermon and it is a lifestyle that is to be lived. And Paul says that we are to do more than just merely heed the doctrine. We're to heed its place within our own life. We're to heed ourselves, And then and only then do you have the ingredients to convert others to Christ, to show people that our religion is worth recommending. It really boils down to this. You may know all about the Bible, and you may be very good at articulating what the Bible says about any given subject, you may be very good at debating the Scriptures with others and convincing other people of what the Scriptures teach, but the fact of the matter is, uh, talk is cheap. And Paul says that we're not only to pay heed that our doctrine is correct, that we do the right things when we assemble in worship, and that we preach the right things when we stand in public assembly and we declare the gospel, but that every day and every moment of every day, our lives are to be a, uh, a living example of that gospel. Our lives are to be a magnetic force to those about us. Our lives are to portray the principles of the gospel in every respect. And so because of that, I believe today that the greatest recommendation, the greatest advertisement that you can attach to your religion is its place within your own heart and your own life. And I want to, in that uh, vein of thinking, I want to talk about four tests that I believe will tell us whether or not we have a religion that is worth recommending to other people. And I want to begin with what I believe is the most fundamental of these, and that is, can you recommend your religion in light of the teaching of the Word of God? Because frankly, if you can't do that, everything else is in vain. In fact, I would ask you today, can you prove what you believe and what you practice? And also, does God approve of what you believe and what you practice? Well, if you've answered one of those questions, you've answered the other, because God cannot, God does not, God will not approve of or sanction a religion that cannot be proven or substantiated by His Word. It's not enough that my religion feels good. It's not enough that my religion seems right. It's not enough that my religion is my religion or that it's always been my religion or the religion of my family or people that I respect or admire but rather can I prove my religion from the Word of God? Can I put my finger on the, on the passage? Can I put my finger upon the command or the example or the necessary inference within the Word of God that proves every practice, every procedure, and every doctrine? Now, the Bible says that our religion is to be put to that test. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21, Paul said, Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. That means that we're to test, we're to try, and we're to cast aside and reject that which cannot be found in God's Word, and we're to obstinately cling to those things that are right and can be proven. John in 1 John 4 and verse 1 said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And I don't have to tell you today that there are literally hundreds and thousands of conflicting religious ideas and theories and doctrines that are being preached today, and it confuses a lot of people, and it overwhelms a lot of people, but the Bible says that we're to test and try the spirits. Well, I only know one way to do that, and that is to test and try what they say up next to what the Bible teaches. And if they fail that test, I'm to reject them, as John says, they are one of these false prophets of which there are many in the world. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, declared that his preaching was based upon the premise of God's Spirit, 
and the demonstration of God's Spirit, and that the Corinthians were to accept what he said, not because he was a great and dynamic or eloquent speaker, not because the Apostle Paul claimed to be something great or claimed to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but because Paul demonstrated that. He had the Holy Spirit within him, and he demonstrated that by the miracles which he performed. And Paul thus says, When I came unto you, my preaching... I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. He says, For I determined to know, uh, not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, Paul had a seal of, of approval. He had vindication upon his preaching, the Spirit of God. He proved what he preached, and he expected no one to accept anything on any less of a standard. Well, do we prove what we preach? Do we prove what we believe? Do we prove what we practice by the Bible? The Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 17 and verse 10 that those at Berea were more noble than those at Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Now here's a group of people that weren't about to be misled. Here is a group of people who went home and they burned the midnight oil after even after hearing the apostles themselves preach in order to make sure that what they heard and what they understood was in accordance with the scriptures that they knew came from God and they weren't going to be deceived. Now I don't have to tell you there are millions of people in the world today that are religiously gullible. In fact, I never cease to be amazed at just how gullible people are. I turn on the television and the radio from time to time and I hear these preachers get on television and preach some of the most preposterous and outlandish doctrines that you've ever heard in your life. They preach some of the most ridiculous things that aren't a 30-second cousin to what the Bible teaches, and people believe that. How do I know they believe that? Well, because those people are living in the lap of luxury, and they can get on television, and they can tell people to sow their seed of faith and to send them a check, to send them money, and I can tell you somebody's sending them money. Otherwise, they couldn't live in their grand estates and drive their luxury automobiles and live in the lap of luxury that they are. People believe that, and they swallow that hook, line, and sinker because those men are charismatic, because those men uh, appear to speak with authority, because those men, uh, for whatever reason or another, appeal to the people watching them, they buy into that and they'll sacrifice for that particular religion, not even taking the time to investigate the Word of God and see if what they're saying is true. Are you religiously gullible and expect other people to be the same? Or can you today confidently recommend your religion from a thus saith the Lord? Now, one of the Lord's disciples, I believe, over the years has received somewhat of an unfair reputation, a little bit of a bad rap, and that is the Lord's disciple Thomas. Now, I'm not upholding Thomas as being perfect in everything he did and everything he said, but I do believe that Thomas, at least to some degree, is unfairly judged because all of my life I have heard of Thomas referred to in rather disparaging terms as old doubting Thomas. And we usually think of Thomas as a negative point in the Lord's, among the Lord's disciples, but I think there's something about Thomas that is worth imitating. Uh, there's something about Thomas that's worth taking notice of. And if you go back to the 20th chapter of the book of John and read the story a little more closely, I think it's easy to pick up on it. Thomas, you'll remember, or I should say Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, appeared unto his disciples, and they met behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And the Bible says that Jesus not only appeared to them, but that they were able to see the riven places within his hands, and they knew, based upon that, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that he was who he claimed to be. 
And so they left that meeting excited about it and they encountered Thomas. Now I don't know why Thomas wasn't with them in the first place. I don't know where Thomas was. I don't know what Thomas was doing. And perhaps Thomas deserved to be rebuked for not having been there. I do know that Thomas missed out on a great blessing by not being where he should have been when he should have been there. And there are a lot of people today in the Lord's church that miss out on a lot of blessings by not being where they ought to be when they ought to be there. They're off doing something else, something that may be more important when others are gathered together learning about the Lord. Well, Thomas was somewhere else. And whatever the reason, whatever the circumstance, he was not privy to the same information that the other disciples were. Well, the disciples come to Thomas and they tell him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. These men were excited. They had just seen their Lord whom they had all seen crucified just a few days before, but Thomas was skeptical. And Thomas does not say, I will not believe, but Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see the nail prints in his hand and the ribbon place in his side. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe, essentially, until I see what you've seen. Well, Jesus gave Thomas that opportunity. And you almost can't blame Thomas from a human standpoint because it would be difficult to believe someone who, like you, whose mind was overwhelmed with grief, here you are, having hung all of your hopes and your dreams and ambitions upon the ministry and the message of this man whom you had seen the Romans take out and crucify on a cross and laid and sealed in that tomb, and you would think it's all gone. It was all for naught. And these men were overcome with grief and despair and felt dejected. And so what would you think? If you were to be put in the sandals of Thomas and someone were to come to you and say, the Lord's alive, he's risen from the dead. Thomas thinks, well, we'd all like to believe that. We all wish that that were true, but I'm going to have to have a little bit more evidence than just your word for it. Thomas says, I want to see what you saw. Well, you know, the Lord gave him that opportunity. Again, Jesus appeared to his disciples. Thomas was there this time. And the Bible says that Jesus not only allowed Thomas to look, but invited him to reach out and to touch the riven places in his hands and in his side. And the Bible says when Thomas did, he exclaimed, my Lord and my God. That is to say, I now believe you are who you claim you are. Why? I've seen the evidence. I've seen the marks of evidence. And so he believed. And Jesus went on to make a point out of that. By saying, yes, it's blessed are those who have seen and believe, but blessed will be those who have not seen and believed. And what that simply means is that the apostles of Jesus Christ, who were, as we talked about the other night, the witnesses of Jesus and of his resurrection, were then to go forth and herald the gospel to the world. And we today believe in Jesus, not because we've seen him risen from the dead, but we believe in him based upon the testimony of those who did. But Thomas at that time was seeking information that was available and that the other disciples had had the opportunity to see. Well, you know, I, there are plenty of marks of identification within the Word of God concerning the Lord's true religion. And you may be one of, I don't know the hearts and minds and the state of everyone here today. We may have visitors among us and you don't count yourself a member of the Church of Christ. Maybe you're searching. Maybe you're looking for the truth. Maybe you're confused and you're overwhelmed and you don't know where to begin in your quest for what is right. And you're bombarded by all of these doctrines and all of these churches and all of these ideas that surround us in the world today and you don't know how to make heads or tails of it. Well, let me tell you where to start and where to end and that's right here. 
because the Bible contains the marks of identification concerning the Lord's church. It tells you all about it, such as where it was established, how it was established, upon what it was established. It tells you uh, how it worshipped. It tells you upon what day it came together to worship. It tells you all about the doctrine that it preached, the name that it wore, and on and on. And you can investigate all of that in your Bible just as easily as anyone else. And you can compare that to the religions that surround us today, and you can know which one is the Lord's church. You can prove your religion by the Bible. And if you can't do that about the religion that you're in today, you need to change your religion. I'm going to tell you it's a very risky thing to gamble your eternal soul upon a religion just simply because somebody you like or trust or admire, maybe a family member, told you that that's what's right. You need to delve into the Word of God and see if it's right. And if it's not, you need to change your religion. Because the Bible says in Matthew 15 and 13, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Second of all, can you recommend your religion by the life that you live? And this becomes a very personal question. It hits close to home. Does your life and your religion, do they complement each other? Does each make the other more attractive and easier to see? Now the fact is, if a man's religion does not change him, then that man needs to change his religion. Now I've said during this meeting already that the real problem in religion tonight, or today, is the fact that no religion, it seems, wants to demand anything of anybody. And they tell people just simply to come as you are and be what you are, and you don't have to change anything about your life. And in fact, that's how these mega churches grow because they claim to be tolerant and to embrace people of every kind of lifestyle and every kind of background and just come and be what you are. And you're not going to be threatened by the Word of God. You're not going to be, you're not going to have constraints and demands placed upon you. And they try to picture that kind of a religion that would conform and change our life and make us to walk a straight and narrow pathway. Why they paint that kind of a religion as something that's so antique and so outdated dated and bigoted is not even worth your time or your consideration. Well, I'm going to tell you something. If your religion doesn't change you, your religion isn't worth a dime. And your religion is certainly not the Lord's religion. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 that the religion of Christ will make him into a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Sometimes people might talk about some family member or some loved one or somebody that attends church from time to time, and they say, you know, it's a shame that that person never has been baptized because really that's all they'd have to do. They wouldn't have to change anything. Well, I don't know what Bible they've been reading out of because my Bible teaches that when I come into Christ, I become a brand new creation. And everything that was wrong in my life becomes right. I turn it over to the Lord, and the Lord takes my life like a lump of clay, and he makes and he molds that into what he wants it to be. And the result is my religion will be a religion of life-changing conviction, not convenience. And if that is not your religion today, something is drastically wrong. Our lives must adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Titus 2 and verse 10. The Pharisees did not adorn the doctrine of God because they said one thing, they preached one thing, they professed one thing, but they did something entirely different. And Jesus condemned that kind of a shallow and that sort of pretentious and hypocritical religion. Paul condemned the practice of having a form of godliness 
but denying the power thereof. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. I don't know of any greater thing you could do to draw people to Christ. I don't know of anything that you could do today to be a more powerful influence for good than to simply live the life that Christ's religion calls upon you to live. Now, I'm not much of a salesman, and I certainly don't like to get into these pyramid marketing, multi-level marketing type schemes. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if it's an honest endeavor and an honest product, and a lot of people get into that, you know, and they make a little extra money, and that's all fine, but all I ask is just leave me out of it. Because invariably, there are people around the country who are on to one of these new pyramid marketing schemes every time you see them, and they want to sit you down and hold you hostage for an afternoon and put their sales pitch on you and get you involved and buy your product. And I always seem to be a target for that. And it seems like more times than not, it revolves around some health product or some weight loss product, and maybe that explains why I'm such a target. But nonetheless, people will try to sit me down and tell me about this wonderful pill that they've come up with, and this pill will do everything that all of that exercise and diet will do for you, and even more. And you don't have to worry about getting out there and sweating and walking and running and doing all of that. Uh, you don't have to back away from the table. You just take a couple of these pills before you sit down to a big gut buster meal, and you know, you're going to be amazed at how the weight falls off. Preachers get into that kind of thing because it sort of supplements their income, and then the next time you see them, six months later, they've not lost any weight. They're as big as the side of a barn. But they wanted to charge you $100 for a bottle of those horse pills, and then they wanted to get you involved in selling it, and so on and so forth. Well, I just don't have any patience with that. I've been burned by that a few times, and I don't have any interest in it. So if you want to get into that, more power to you, but leave me alone. But I'm going to tell you something. If I see you and all of a sudden you've dropped 50 pounds, you're not going to have to come up to me and say, look at me. Look what I've done. Look how good I look. Would you like to know what I've been doing? No, I'm going to beat you to the back door, and I'm going to say, you look wonderful. I want to know what's your secret. How did you do that? How did you lose that weight so fast? And you're going to have an opportunity to tell me, and I'm going to be all ears. Now, that really illustrates something very serious today, and that is our religion. That's the way our religion should be in the eyes of other people. And in fact, I will go so far as to say that if no one in your life ever observes, and I don't mean by what you say, by how you live, if they never observe that you are a Christian, that there is something different about you, if no one ever approaches you and says, what's different about your life? Why don't you go to these places? Why don't you wear these kind of clothes? Why don't you talk the way we... Why don't you enjoy the jokes that we all tell? Why don't you go to the bar with people after, church, or after work? Why don't you do this? Why don't you go to the school dance? Why don't you do all of these things? Your religion is very weak. It's very impotent. You cannot recommend your religion holding a beer in your hand. You cannot recommend your religion running around half naked. You cannot, you cannot recommend your religion on a dance floor. You cannot recommend your religion going to many of the places that the world goes and doing many of the things that the world does. In fact, you nullify your profession of religion. Your religion is something that must change your life. And let me tell you, when that happens, people are going to see the change and they're going to be drawn to you. In fact, there are two kinds of people in the world. 
There are people who have destroyed their life by sin, but they'd like to have a better life. There are people who are searching and they are looking and they have a good and an honest heart that Jesus talked about over in the parable of the sower. And then there are other people in the world that they're antagonistic toward religion. They don't like Christianity very much. It's like a light that shines into the darkness of their hearts and it's offensive to them. They don't like it. And so they don't like anybody to live a life around them that would afflict their conscience or that would point them to a better way. Well, Jesus said, you know, that we're the light of the world, we're the salt of the earth. Well, light's a good thing, and light to some people from their perspective might be a bad thing. And salt is a good thing in that it's a preservative, but salt as well can be a painful thing when you pour it into a wound. And that's the way it is when people see the life that we live. They're either drawn to it because they want a better life or those people are going to be turned away by the life that we live because they enjoy sin and they want to remain in sin. And so our life becomes an offense to them. But I'm going to tell you, a person who lives the Lord's religion is not going to be neutral. And your life is not going to be met with indifference at school, at work by your neighbors, by those about you. It's going to produce one result or the other. And if it doesn't, you need to examine your religion. The Apostle Paul said, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you, Philippians 4 and 9. Can you echo that statement along with Paul? It was Paul who said, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Now I understand that Paul was an inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, and that he had authority that no other man possessed, or no other, people, uh, no other group of people possessed than what the apostles did. But can you make that statement in principle today? Can you tell people that you imitate me. You live the life that I live. You be what I am and you'll be saved. Number three, can you recommend your religion by the way you support it? Now, one of the greatest recommendations you can give to anything is by your excitement, your enthusiasm, your zeal for that particular thing. And that zeal tends to be a bit contagious. It tends to get people's attention. At the very least, they see how important and how convinced and how convicted of that particular thing that you are. Stumble upon some product, you let some lady stumble across some new cleaning detergent or some new cleaning solution that will take the stains out of everything that every product she's ever spent all that money at the store and buying before and that uh, to try to get that stain out and wouldn't do it. You let, it, uh, you let her find that final that product that did the trick and you see how long it takes her to tell everybody else about it. She gets excited about that. You find something in life that you are really convicted about and you're going to be excited about it. You're going to tell other people about it. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 and 13, I believed and therefore did I speak. Now when you see therefore or wherefore in the scripture, that means you need to look back and see what it's there for. And Paul says, I believed and therefore did I speak. In other words, I spoke because I believed. My speaking was an outgrowth of the fact that I believed. It was, a, it was a reflex of my conviction. The apostles, when they were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, they continued to do so. And when called upon to explain themselves, they said, we cannot help but tell the things that our eyes have seen and our ears have heard. They could not help. They could not contain it. It was like it was to the prophet Jeremiah, a fire shut up in their bones. They could not contain it. If your next door neighbor's house was on fire 
and you knew that the family was inside that home? Do you suppose you would look out the window and see the smoke and see the flames and shrug your shoulders and say, well, I sure hope they smell the smoke before it's too late. I sure hope they come to realize that their house is on fire and get out of there. You know, you know that that's an urgent life and death situation and you would be calling 911. You'd be running next door and banging on the doors and the windows and getting their attention and trying to rescue anybody that could be rescued. Well, I'm going to tell you something today. There is a world surrounding us that is going to hell as quick as they can get there. And there are people in your life every day. There are people that you sit next to at work. There are people that you play with on the playground at school. There are people that you live next door to. There are people that you see every day within your life. And you know what? They're headed to hell and they're going just as fast as they can. And yet we pass them by every day and we never say a word about their souls. We never say a word about Jesus. And I don't know how to explain that other than maybe we're not quite as convicted as we should be about what the Bible says. If we really believed and we really understood the people that we claim to love in this life are bound for an eternity without God if they don't turn around, how could we possibly, how could we possibly keep ourselves from telling them and doing everything we possibly can to save them we recommend our religion not only by what we say, but by people seeing its place and its priority within our own life. Are you zealous of good works? Titus 2 and verse 14. Are you ready unto every good work? Titus 3 and 1. Are you full of good works? Acts 9 and verse 36. I'm going to tell you, one of the great frustrations for me in preaching the gospel in many places is to be called away from my home to travel hundreds upon hundreds of miles to spend a week away from my family when I could be at home watching my little girls grow up and working with a local congregation and perhaps accomplishing good down there, to be called hundreds of miles away to a congregation and not have that congregation care enough about the gospel and about the meeting to even show up. Now when you stand up here or in a pulpit and you occupy this place, you'll identify with that. I promise you. Not too long ago, I held a meeting in a congregation that I believe had some of the most pitiful crowds that I can ever remember in the last 15 or so years I've been holding meetings. On Sunday morning, this congregation had more than 60 people in that building. And on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I counted. Do you know how many of their own members we could count on to be at that meeting? And I'm factored in people who had health issues who couldn't come because of their health, and I understand that. There were just a little over 12 people in that congregation you could count on. Now, I say all that to get to this. They had a sign out front, a banner that was made up in front of the church building. And it said in big letters, Jesus wants you here, gospel meeting, so-and-so dates and so-and-so times. I mean, it caught your attention going down the road. It was beautifully designed and very prominent along the side of the street. Jesus wants you here. Well, I'd had a belly full of it by Sunday, and I got up and I told them. I said, I'm going to get personal with you folks here. And I told them, you know, we've got 60 people here today, and there were about a dozen of you we could count on to be here throughout the meeting. 
And I said, but I do want to commend your sign you have out front here. I said, I think that's really good. Jesus wants you here. In fact, I can't think of any place in all the world that Jesus would have wanted everybody in this town to be this week than right here listening to the gospel being preached that could save their souls. I can't think of any place Jesus would want them to be more than that. And I said, do you suppose Jesus would want you here too? It is the height of hypocrisy for us to claim that we want the church to grow, to claim that we care about people's souls, to claim that the church is important, to claim that the Lord is our all in all, but we're too busy and we just don't care enough to support a gospel meeting, to go to church, to put the Lord first in our own life. As the old saying goes, people do not care what you know until they know that you care. And that's exactly right. I don't know anything that illustrates that point anymore than the beautiful parable that Jesus told over recorded in Luke the 10th chapter. Remember that Jesus said there was a certain man that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That was an infamous pathway. I believe it was something about 30 miles and it was a steep, treacherous descent from the capital city down to the Dead Sea. And this road was saturated with bandits and with thieves. And when you traveled that roadway, you took your life into your own hands. Well, this man left and he made the journey and it wasn't very long before he fell among thieves, the Bible says. And the thieves stripped him of his clothes and they beat him to a bloody pulp and they left him on the side of the road in a pool of blood to die. And then Jesus introduces three characters to the story. Jesus said, first of all, there came a priest. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were broken down in the Mojave Desert or if I were broken down by the side of the road in some dangerous and distant place, I think I would be pretty happy if I saw a preacher come along or if I saw someone that I knew was a was a very devout church member. I'd be glad to see someone like that come along. Jesus says, here comes a priest. Well, you would think, wouldn't you? This man was the salvation of this poor man that had fallen upon such bad luck. Well, no, the Bible says he just simply passed on his way. He didn't want to defile himself. And he had other things to attend to, so he just goes merrily along his way. And then Jesus says, here comes a Levite. Again, another person alleged to be a very religious person. And so again, you would think if a religious person comes by that this person would be my salvation. Well, the Levite at least had the curiosity to walk over there and survey the scene. But he as well didn't want to be bothered and he went to the other side of the road and went on his way. Then Jesus introduces the third character of the story and by very mention of the name it would have made their nostrils flare with righteous indignation. He said, then comes a Samaritan. And to these Jews listening to Jesus, the very name Samaritan would have made them recoil because a Samaritan was nothing more than a half-breed and a dog. And these people certainly put no stock in whatever religion a Samaritan might claim to have. But here comes a Samaritan, and you know the story. Jesus says that he stops. And he takes the man and pours oil and wine into his wounds and binds them up and he carries them down the way to a little inn where he secures lodging where he can convalesce and he pays the bill in full. And Jesus says then to that group of spectators, he said, now 
Who was neighbor to him that fell among thieves? Well, they couldn't even bring themselves to say Samaritan. They said it was the one who showed mercy on him. And the point simply is this. Who recommended their religion? When the rubber met the road, who recommended their religion? Was it the priest with all of his titles and all of his duties and all of his religious garb? And who is it that recommends his religion today? Is it the person that likes to put on a pious face and likes to tell people how religious he is and how holy and how righteous he is and likes to tell people how important the church is to them? Or is it the person that someone sees living the life every day and sees just how important the church really is to them? A story some of the older preachers used to tell, maybe you've heard it, I don't know, but that a young preacher was holding a gospel meeting in a congregation one time. And about halfway through the meeting, there was a prominent businessman that came from that community. And really everyone was shocked to see him there because they would have thought the last thing on his mind would be that little church down there on the corner. And certainly that little church would have been beneath a man of his ilk and his stature in the community. But here he came and he came in and sat in the back of the building and he listened very intently to the sermon. And People were floored when the invitation hymn was sung and he walked forward and wanted to be baptized. Well, the young preacher took him back and as they were getting ready for the baptism, the young preacher, feeling somewhat proud of himself, asked the man, he said, what did I say in my sermon tonight to convince you to want to be baptized? And the man said, well, young man, you preached a good sermon, but he said, I'm going to be honest with you, you didn't say anything that made me want to be baptized. He said, did you see that little old lady that was sitting close to me back in the back? And he knew her, knew her well. She'd been a longtime faithful member of that church. He said, she's been my secretary for 30 years. And said, for that 30 years, I have never seen anything but a godly woman. I know that woman loves this church and I have seen her make her way to this little church down here in the heat and in the cold and in the snow and in the ice and in the rain. I see her when she has a few spare moments at work opening her Bible and reading her Bible and I see her offering thanks for her food. I see her modest and her godly demeanor. And if you want to know why I did what I did today, it's because for 30 years I've seen just how important Jesus Christ and this little church is to her. People are watching you every day. Are you recommending your religion? Finally today, can you recommend your religion by the way it works for you? In other words, does your religion give you something to anchor to in times of trouble? When a crisis comes, can you recommend your religion? When you lose your job and the future seems uncertain, can you still recommend your religion? What about when someone very dear to you gets sick and they die? Can you recommend your religion? What about in times in your life when you're down and discouraged and depressed? Can you recommend your religion? Now we'd all like to think that we could, but you know there are many people that don't because their religion only plays a role in their life when all is well. Oh, when everything's great, when everything's encouraging, when everything's just going their way, they're all excited about the church. They're faithful to the church. But you allow some problem to come along in their life, and the first thing that happens is they start to grow weak. 
And before long, they fall by the wayside. They get discouraged. And you make your way out there to see them, and they say, well, now when I get all of this straightened out, when I get all of these problems worked out, then I'm going to come back to the church. Wrong. You don't get it straightened out until you get in the church because that's how and that's where you get it straightened out. You see, the Lord's religion is not only men. As a vehicle of service and praise and worship to God, it is well as meant is meant to be of benefit to us and to help us steer the uncertain course of life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6 and 10, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. David said in Psalm 3 and 3, Thou art a shield for me. He said, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm 84 and verse 11. And I believe that today. I believe that the religion of Jesus Christ provides the strength, it provides the encouragement, it provides the power to face any circumstance within your life today. And if your religion does not do that, you have the wrong religion. I worry about people who go around all the time with long, sad, weary faces. And their religion is not a source of joy to them, it's drudgery to them. A religion that makes people look sick, my friends, is not going to cure the world. The world has plenty of that out there. What they need is a religion that infuses some hope and some optimism into their life. They need a religion that shows them that there's a better way. They need a religion that shows that they have a future. They need a religion that shows them that regardless of how badly the chips may be down, that regardless of how bad things may be in their life, there's something better ahead. And we tell people and we reflect that religion by our own attitude about it and by its place within our own life. And my friend, if that's not your religion, you have the wrong one. Because man does not merely need a creed that he upholds. He needs a creed that upholds him. And today, if that's not your religion, I offer to you a religion like that. I offer you the Lord's religion. We offer to you today a religion that you can prove every point of it in the Word of God. Try it and see. Put it to the test and see if you don't agree. I offer you a religion today that, yes, is going to call upon you to make some changes in your life, and it's not going to be easy. And I would tell you today that you need to count the cost before you make a decision to obey it because you're going to have to change some things in your life. You're going to have to give some things up. And you're going to have to completely rearrange your life and your priorities. And some things that never were important to you before are going to have to become number one. That's going to have to happen. And I'm offering to you a religion today that will give you an anchor in the worst of storms. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.